there's healthy eagle populations. I think you can go all around Alaska and find really healthy populations of eagles. But this time of year, there tends to be a bigger concentration of eagles in that whole Kachemak Bay area. So I don't know if you could go there next year and see 20 eagles or if that's something that's yearly. There was a woman there, I would say 10 years ago, that used to feed the eagles too. It was just kind of her mission. Every morning and every afternoon, she would feed the eagles. So at one of the trips I was down there, I counted over 400 bald eagles just standing in one spot. My head hadn't processed it far enough along to realize that you really can challenge yourself as a photographer to create a really diverse and impressive portfolio on a shoot like this. Welcome to Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, your hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. Michael is in Alaska. Ron just arrived back from Alaska. And you, our audience, and myself are in for a treat because both parties get to hear about their adventure and what went on. And it was a phenomenal trip. I was unable to go because of some arrangements. I'd already been booked for other venues and I just couldn't map out the same dates as my good buddy Ron. So the two of them went ahead, my camera buddies, and went to this place in Homer, Alaska, and other places too, and had a phenomenal experience to shoot. Michael, rub it in. How is it still up there in Alaska? I can see it's daylight there. It is not here in Ontario. It's been awesome here. When Ron and I were here, it was pretty much blue. I don't think we had a cloudy day the whole time, and it's been sunny. We had one, yep. One cloudy No day. rain days? No, nothing. Yeah, it was like amazing. And it's How been did amazing. I miss this trip? How well, did I said miss that, it? Uh, I was watching the news the other day, and they said that there was zero snow in March in Alaska or in Anchorage. So it's like unheard of to have a shocking zero snow. So really we had nice. a blizzard today. Really? Here. Yeah, it was like 50-mile-an-hour winds. We had a spectacular day, 50-mile-an-hour winds, blizzard, but then it'd be these cirrus clouds would come through and just zipping along, and then it get blizzard again. Just hot and cold flashes here in, in southern Ontario today. But I looked at the weather when you guys were up there because I was receiving these teaser images that were so painful to look at, and it was warmer there than it was here. So that's Amazing. And and not to have snow once in March in Anchorage. Yeah. Is that, that's got to be unprecedented. Yeah, there's not many. They put up a little graphic and there was not many years where that's happened. So you never know. They say there's a storm coming in from the north currently and we might get, but they You're say in the north. rain from the you north down south directly further north, Anchorage. Right. Yeah. yeah. So when you look out your window in Anchorage, Alaska, right now in that nice late afternoon light do you see snow is there snow on the ground no wow zero all right yeah it's what crazy. about up the mountainside there must be some as you get to higher elevation yeah obviously right yeah when we drove when we drove down to homer there was you know all the it's not like a we've done this eagle trip a lot or i've done it a lot right so in the early days we'd go generally in march and you'd go down there and some days you'd have just snow 
over the highway on the side of the edge of the highway. This year, I don't know, you could have walked anywhere we looked at, right, Ron? And we saw a lot of of uh, avalanche yeah. paths, but nothing that was... There's still a lot of snow in the mountains, but not anything next to the road. Yeah, everybody talked about the early breakup of the snow down there, the snowpack. So it's it's been a warmer spring, it sounds like, all the way around. How's the snow in Wyoming? I know it was super deep in northern Wyoming. Yeah, right? and it's, you know, around here, it's it's mostly gone. Is that right? Um, yeah, and some of the some of the draws in the deeper valleys in the mountain, obviously, that don't see the sun, they're still holding a little bit more snow. But for the most part, the snow's, snow's gone, and actually things are starting to green up a little bit. That's with fast. With the forbs and, yeah. Yeah, it's been fairly warm, and we're getting a little bit of rain here and there. So on a previous podcast, you and Heath, your son, had a weekend in Yellowstone and and the description of the snow there. Grand Teton Park, not Yellowstone. But yeah, it was very deep over there, and there's still quite a bit of snow. We've actually, we've got some common friends that are up there right now, I believe, and uh, they had to stay in the north because nothing else was opened up yet. Now, it was a concern for the wildlife there due to the depth of snow and the lack of movement. And so has that melted enough that the animals are good to go, or is it still a concern? Um, no, I think it sounds like they're uh, they're good right now. Okay. The, the elk are still in Jackson Hole. They haven't moved back north yet because there's, there's still enough to keep them from getting all the way to their summer ground. But they're they're feeding a lot better as the grass starts to green up so that's I, I love wyoming but let's let's get back to alaska and i want to i you know i'm looking forward to doing so many trips with both of you but i don't know ron if i can travel with you anymore if we can fly together because you fly first class now <laughs> <laughs> only and one I, way well i didn't i would i didn't realize that but i want you how did you get your first class? You just decided that, you know, this trip was worth it and you just put the bucks out there on the table and said, we're going to do this. Uh, No, I did not. It's actually one of the benefits of uh, one of Mike's pro tips on the travel podcast that we did is, you know, belong to a mileage club and got on my mileage club. I called the concierge service instead of booking it myself. And they always find you the cheapest deal. And one thing that they were able to do is find me a free ticket based on the number of miles that I had. But then the other thing that they were able to do was uh, he said, once he figured out that the dates would work for me, he said, okay, well, I wasn't going to tell you this part. And he's, he said, you'll be flying first class all the way up. So that was bonus. I, Sweet. I, I took a picture of my boots and the, the first class little flyer that they have in the seat back. And those two things have never seen each other before. And they'll probably never see each other again so i i had to have that picture so that was, no, that was that's, a cool way to start the trip that's pretty nice yeah first right class is the way to travel if you can but i normally i can't i hate bringing up the subject but winter's transition is spring thank god the day length is getting longer and brighter and the animals are moving that's more to see uh, i haven't been doing much in the way of photography I've had talks and I've had some trips I've had to do for other reasons and mostly editing, but I'm getting near the end of the editing. But what prompted this week's pro tip was the editing, just the amount of editing that people have to do now. When we became 
wildlife photographers or nature photographers, it was about the animals. It was about the experience with the animals, the fun with the animals, the documenting that in the field. I did not expect to become or have to become a computer geek. <laughs> Nothing wrong with being a computer geek. I totally respect that. Although, I mean, that knowledge base, it's, and it's become paramount to everything we do. Everything we do. Communicating. Between the smartphones. I mean, it, it, the list is endless. What we need to know. And when it comes to photography, it's not just the editing, but the marketing then there's stuff like social media and trying to stay abreast of those changing, ever-changing algorithms. What's up with that? Why do we need to keep changing algorithms? Please stop. You know, just <laughs> base it on popularity of likes. Keep it simple. I mean, if only. I mean, there's so much of technology that is based on keep it simple. Why do we need these complicated algorithms that mess things up? My point is we have to spend a lot of time sitting in front of screens. And that's the word sitting right so we're stuck on our butts for hours days weeks months editing photos um, learning on youtube and, and watching things and then promoting and marketing it's unhealthy it's entertaining but it's unhealthy it's unhealthy for our eyeballs because we're at arm's length from a screen from our desktop from our laptop from our ipad from our smartphone our eyes are only focusing at two feet for how many hours a day? Way too many. So what we have to do to try and keep our eyesight and to keep some physical health is to move. And trying to remember to do that frequently when we're editing is something I have to remember this time of year. And thankfully, the longer days inspire that. You want to be outside. It's sunny more often. It's warmer. So every hour... You know, I get up, I walk around, I go outside, at least I go to the picture window in the house and I look at the far off forest. So my eyes have to look far away and focus for five minutes on something that's not at two feet. So my pro tip this week is to look after your eyes. Don't sit in front of the screen for hours on end without taking a break, giving your eyes the opportunity to focus at greater distances. Also for blood flow to get off the butt move around, stretch it out, grab a door frame, stretch out your arms and just move. And this is where another hack could be. And I still don't have one. I've talked about it for years. I have a couple of friends that have one. I haven't found the right one. It's the whole standing desk thing. But then there's some research. I mean, I'm not an expert on these things. I've read research that standing too long is not good for you either, right? So, so it's a matter of balance. But it would be nice to have, I have one friend who has a variable desk that's electric. Electron, so it's um, powered with a motor, and he's got his iMac on it, and he'll stand and hit the button, and it goes up three feet, so it works. I haven't logistically figured that out. That would be perfect to have something so that I could sit for 45 minutes, edit, stand for whatever period of time was deemed to be healthy, and then go take a break and walk. Final thing about this pro tip that I'll throw in there is you know, no matter what, we do have to edit so many images and, and spend hours at these screens. To have a good chair, have it at the right height, and have good lumbar support is is worth a few extra bucks, too. So spending $200 on the right kind of chair that has variable settings for height, for backrest. You know, I bought an Obus form uh, just because it's the one I found. Uh, back, lumbar support that goes behind me, between me and the chair as well. So having a good chair... 
taking breaks for your eyes and for your body. And if you can, figure out a way to have a variable desk or things to think about in this world of photography that we all participate in that requires so much time in front of screens. Hey, let me give a couple of pointers on that because I can just add to that. Please and do. And that will take away from me having to come up with a better pro tip. So <laughs> I've bought three of those desks, those raising ones, electric ones. They're awesome because mm-hmm. you can. You can up it. You can hit a little button and it goes up. When you want to stand, hit a little button, it goes down, you can sit down. And I also bought the same thing, a really good chair. I mean, some of these chairs are like $1,200, and I'm thinking, I'm not spending $1,200. But you sit in them, and they're super comfy, and they're super adjustable, and you can get it where you want it. What I ended up doing is I found a guy. I found a guy. And basically what he does is he On the corner out. of what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just after dark. I haven't checked here in Anchorage yet, and it may not be as prevalent as it is in Denver, but this guy goes out and he'll have a business go out of business in a major high-rise and say they have the whole floor of the high-rise. He'll go in and buy all that furniture for that whole floor, and then he resells it. Well, I found this guy that had that stuff, and I could go down and buy a $1,200 chair for 200 bucks, and then I could go in and buy these desks, for 75 bucks, the ones that raised and lowered. So look for something like that. Now, I just contacted him recently about buying another one of those desks that goes up and down, and he's like, you know what? Amazon is the best place. He is found. He can't match the prices that you can get on Amazon for a desk that goes up and down. So just to add on to your tip, I agree with all that, and I think you do need to move and you need to be comfy. And those $1,200 chairs are totally worth it, but I'm not going to pay 1200 bucks. but I found a way to get one. And then uh, the desk is pretty sweet. And the editors, all the editors I work with that are editing video every day, they live by those raise and lower desks. And they're adjustable height-wise too, right? You could have it go six inches higher or lower depending if the person's five foot four or six feet tall. Right. Yeah, you can, when you hit the button, you can go to any height or any, any depth. You can go up and down to whatever you want within reason. I mean, it's not totally adjustable, but... All I'm going to say is welcome to my daily world. You guys are complaining about it, and it's where I'm stuck. <laughs> we all are. That's all. But, but so I hate to say this, Ron, but yeah. newsflash, but the photography is like that too for editing, right? I, but so it depends I, on – I mean, we've talked about workflow, and there are differences, and there are reasons I spend more time editing. But if you think of a video editor, ah, right? That would be, and we, you know, we aspire to do more and more of that, even for vlogs. I mean, that takes time. Right. It's not just looking at an image. It, you know, it's watching that video over and over and fixing it over. And so trying to, yeah. trying to find the right Leonard Skinner song to throw on your audio track. <laughs> well, no, you're not allowed Leonard Skinner. You have podcasts. <laughs> Once in yeah, a while. I agree. I was editing some of those Eagle clips that we took while we were up there. We did quite a bit of video. And I actually, I don't know. I know you've done some with the D850, but I was figured out how to run slow-mo on the D850. I didn't think we had that capability at even 1080p, but we do and and got some really unique stuff. So that was that was kind of fun, too, to, to be able to capture those little video clips and and put them all together as well it was a good time so that's an interesting pro tip in itself because i haven't played with slow-mo on the 850 and so you do have to drop it from 4k to 1080 to do slow-mo. yeah 
Yep, you have to drop it to 4A. And it, it doesn't give you the range of uh, frames per second, but it gives you, you know, three times, four times, five times hmm. slower. Right. So it, it worked great. It looks pretty seamless when you watch the video, but it is 1080p. Are you going to have a few of those videos to put up as these podcasts come out from this trip on the show I, notes? I actually threw one up already on my Instagram, bald eagle that choked on two sea otter ribs and had to spit them back out. I was watching that. I was wondering what it was going to do. I was, based on your caption, I was a little concerned it was going to choke on it, but thankfully it no. brought it back up. It was happy ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, when you got slow-mo video like that, that's, you know, that's awesome. And yeah. the pictures that you guys collected on this trip, I mean, from what you described to me, and when I, I wanted to go, and like I said, I just couldn't map out the same dates as you were on to be there. So I was hoping it would be productive, but it really, you guys hit it out of the park. Both of well, you collected images that if I was talking to my editorial clients, I don't have a big Eagle portfolio. And if I was talking to them, I'd be like, everything's solved right here. I mean, it was for one trip, that was some very impressive imagery and only got better I, you know you put some stuff on social media and i was like that's awesome and then it was i i eventually had to ask you guys to stop <laughs> <laughs> yeah we didn't even broach the tip of the iceberg i mean there's a couple that probably will be limited edition shots oh absolutely yes so, guaranteed but yeah. we can't we got to stop we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves we're not we're not in Alaska quite yet. Well, Michael is, but we're not. And so do you have a pro tip before we do the question of the week? I think that would be sufficient uh, on the video. Do take the time, and we've talked about it before, take the time to get some video clips and, uh, you know, research the capabilities of your DSLR. Make sure you have a tripod, solid tripod. You know, we'll, t <laughs> we'll t talk about Mike's tripod in a little bit also but try to do some different things but the slow motion obviously the just the dramatic effect of that slow motion video take the time to to get a clip here and there if you have you know if you have the opportunity even at a at a bird feeder or something in your backyard take a chance and and go do it you'll no, be surprised never. i think with the outcome yeah so much so that Ron was like, I don't think I'm going to shoot stills anymore. He just became I the said, video guy. I told him it. I actually chewed him out a little bit because he just in that quick, I was addicted to That's what cool. the what the possibilities were. Which totally speaks to why he was looking for Leonard Skinner songs because he was already putting this video together when we were driving down the road, <laughs> trying to figure out how he's going to put, what song was going to work best with this slow-mo flight video of Eagles. Yeah, perfect. And it was a very short flight clip because I found very good at follow focus. <laughs> so, yeah, that that is a skill that I'm going to have to continue to work on. But well, it was it was fun. that's a challenge. Yeah, the one of the biggest challenges of video. Right. Yeah, Fraction, motion. Right. Yep. But when you get it, all right. Let's do a quick question of the week. So this one came up from. A friend of mine, Kevin, and he approached me asking about sending images to have prints made. He wants to have a bunch of prints, canvases, metals made uh, for various applications. Now, we're not going to get into the glossier mat. We're not going there, Ron. We're not going there this time. We'll just, 
he wanted to know about sizing. And so I thought it'd be, it'd be good just to take a couple of minutes in our podcast and talk about what we deliver for sizing for prints. And it was interesting, the website that he was on, so he'd listened to the podcast where we had talked about this and I had mentioned the different companies and, and I think you mentioned one or two as well, Ron, that we had, that we have used and, and we're happy with what we'd received back from them. But he was on something else and it was weird because they gave him about, or the software he was using, if it wasn't the website, he sent me these screenshots and gave him about 10 options of resolution quality. And his question was, what resolution do I send? I was like, whoa, this is weird software to me because the DPI was all over the map from 160 DPI to 350. I'm like, why, why change that? This is a print. Sizing was all over the map. So just to keep it simple, I, I believe, well, not, not to work in JPEG form. So people who have, you deliver in JPEG, 300 DPI always for print. 300 DPI JPEG, but you can't work in the JPEG form, open it, work on it, resave it, open it, resave it, change it again, because it degrades after a few times, you'll notice a difference. So don't do that. I think that could have been happening. I didn't actually specifically ask him that, but that could have been an issue. So working for me, I work in TIFF format because then you don't lose anything when you make the changes. And I know you guys in Lightroom, you can work with this, with the attachment in with the raw and go from there and then when you're finally finished you create the 300 dpi jpeg to upload to your print manufacturer and again whether it's a paper print canvas or metal it's always 300 dpi high resolution jpeg the sizing just depends on what you're going to print so you know i have a friend of mine who who works at a big design agency and years ago i asked him because i did i had a whole bunch of large uh, canvases and metal prints done i was a um, experimenting with metal and loved it the results of that but when you get your high resolution image out of your camera it's not 24 by 36 unless it's some of the new huge sensors so some of them require upsizing so that's a head scratcher how do you do that so again you work if you're in lightroom and you guys can correct me on this because i don't use lightroom for this purpose but you would do it in lightroom with your raw file that you've adjusted and just upsize in Photoshop, where I do it, I have the file open. I'll open the TIFF. At three, it's always 300 DPI. And, you know, just off the top of my head, you know, the D4S was, I, was it, I actually can't remember. Was it not? No. If a file's 9 by 14 to start with and you need to make it 16 by 24, you open it as a TIFF and then you do that and adjust it yourself. Don't rely on the manufacturer to make that adjustment from your JPEG, do it in your in Lightroom or as a TIFF. And so the newer ones like the 850, what's what's the native file size? Do you know off the top of your head, Ron? I could pull it up here, 24 by 36. 24 by 36, roughly. that would be the aspect ratio. Yes. Okay, so but that's ideal because- size it, yeah. Yeah, so let's say we're gonna go bigger. We're gonna go billboard. Some of the metal, the metal manufacturers, some of these print companies keep getting bigger and bigger, larger platforms. It's only more impressive if you can do it. But you have to upsize your image, and you can look at the integrity on your screen again when you do that. But one thing we've mentioned on previous podcasts, too, is if you have to do a big jump, let's say you're doubling the dimensions or even tripling to do it in small stages. Do six segmented increases. So do it from, you know, if it's a nine-inch smallest width, go to 12, go to 16, go to 18 on your way to 24. Don't just go from nine to 24. 
So that was something that my friend at the design agency told me was that to do it in stages helps maintain the quality of the file. Use a TIFF file format or in Lightroom working with your RAW. Don't resize in the JPEG. Then when you've got the actual size you want to take to have upload to print, if you're doing a 16 by 24, 24 by 36, you have that dimension. So you upload a 24 by 36, 300 DPI JPEG so that the print company doesn't have to make any adjustments themselves. You've done it. You've had control of your own artwork and given them what you want to have printed. So I just want to touch on that question and answer that just for those that might not. I know most of our audience probably knows this stuff, but for those that don't, just the fundamentals for, and it's so easy now, man. There's so many great print companies out there for canvases and metal and there's, and their websites are so user-friendly and, it's such a competitive marketplace that they have sales every like two weeks. You know, one yeah. was 35% off last week for five days site-wide. You know, other times they'll, they'll pick something like a 16 by 24 canvas set might regularly be $90 and it's $40. You know, it's, so watch for that stuff too. Or, you know, have four or five companies that you've heard are good and just if you're going to have a print canvas metal or made then just check them all out before you upload it but it's amazing how easy it is and shipping rates compared to what they used to be man just make sure you deliver the size of file 300 dpi jpeg that you're actually having printed yeah and you know i use for my canvases i use a company called atl canvas down in atlanta georgia you know there's the others that Mark has mentioned before i mean artbeat studios there's bay photo those are two and, and- White House, House Custom Colors. Color. Yeah. Those are the three I use yeah. for U.S. clients. Yeah. Do a couple prints with, with those companies, though. They don't have to be huge prints, even if they're going to be for yourself. And test the color profile. You know, if you've got a color-corrected monitor, which we all should, for those printers. because Or ask the printer if they have a specific color profile. And you can use that when you do your export so that it it matches what they're set up for. You know, I also use a, a lab called McGreevy Pro Lab in New York, and McGreevy will check that for you. So, you know, that's something else to keep in mind. Make sure your color profile matches the printer or do a couple test prints, even if you do paper prints with them, as they're a lot cheaper, just to make sure that what you're seeing on your screen is what you're going to get back or what your client is going to receive. You want to make sure that uh, they get the quality that you're expecting them to get. You know what, guys? We have to hug it out for a moment here. I think we have a great podcast because we all come from different experiences. And, you know, I think I've covered all the bases when I talk about something. And then each of you bring up something that just makes it that much more informative and the insight that's given. So this is awesome. And and it's a good point. You know, don't spend $3,000 in your first go. Order a couple of prints like you're saying and test it. I know White House Custom Color when you I don't uh, when you sign up with them the first time. I forget if it was six images, you would send them for free and then they'll send you a, a bunch of little a package of printouts different sizes and then you can just see about lighting and color and, and how you marry up with their system. But yeah, test it for sure. That's great advice. All right, let's get back to where Michael is in Alaska. I just listened to the first podcast that you guys recorded there. I've seen some teaser images. I'm looking forward to hearing the details. What stuck with me, part of that first podcast, was great accommodations, hot tub, aurora borealis. 
<laughs> my two buddies. So I'm not sure. At first, I'm like, I want to be there. And then I'm picturing <laughs> my, my camera buddies in the hot tub. Hot tub time machine here. Looking up at the northern lights. Talking about the eagles. The bald eagles. The day. Anyway, sounds like you had a great time. Oh, it was a phenomenal trip. You know, I knew what to expect. There were some slow times for sure, but I think he kind of undersold it, you know, in my mind. Every trip has slow times. It's those highlight yeah, reels that stick with you. Those yeah. When that happens on a trip, when you get those shots that are arguably once-in-a-lifetime quality of images, the rest of it's gravy. It's it's, And the other thing about in Alaska, from every trip I've done there... I mean, you can't predict what you're going to come away with, with the images or the experience. But just being in Alaska, so what was the view like from the hot tub? Tell me that. Well, Pretty nice. Mountains, snow-capped disclosure. None of that. I, no, 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 no. I didn't know. <laughs> oh, you said disclosure. Okay, sorry. Full disclosure. I didn't know there was a hot tub, so I didn't even take a swimsuit. So there was oh, no hey. hot tubbing. There was zero hot tubbing. I accomplished okay all right yeah. but my point is the views in alaska you know just even when it's slow it's it's a beautiful place to be yeah so this place was set basically right on top of a a big drop off i wouldn't say it was a cliff a bluff it was yeah it was a bluff and uh but it dropped straight down into this well, i was almost a little estuary it was there were some ponds down below right off the ocean right off the beach and you're looking right across the inlet at the mountains, you know, on the, on the far side at the mountains, actually the, some of the bays that we ended up going into later, but the view was unreal. It was kind of situated east to west. So you could potentially see the sunrise in the morning and then watch it go down in the evening. Almost. We had a little bit of a little bit of a point that came out or a little bit of a peninsula that came out that took some of that light in the evening, but it was a perfect location. And, and honestly, there were birds soaring around at eye level. So I was definitely pleasantly surprised with the accommodations, especially given that they were the cheapest that we found. Well, and I was a little scared because Ron, he, it was his job to find someplace to stay. And so I was like, I can deal with whatever. I can sleep on rocks. I don't care. And when we walked into this place, I was like, this is the cheapest place in Homer, and this is what you get. It's a, It was amazing. Really nice hardwood floors, total 100% authentic cabin. There was a fireplace in there. Not It was like a gas fireplace, but it served as your heater, but also you could see the flame. And then, yeah, right out the back door was this bluff that probably dropped 1,000 feet. So those eagles like those thermals that come up, and it was warm enough during the days where those thermals were going and i don't know i counted probably 20 eagles flying out there one day just behind the cabin and i think there's a pretty healthy eagle population there year round but this time of year there tends to be a bigger concentration of eagles in that whole kachemak bay area so i don't know if you could go there next year and see 20 eagles or if that's something that's yearly or if that was just a, a different time thing year. For this year yeah why is this time of year better to find eagles there it's a good question i think Historically, it was because the fishermen would come in and there was a cannery down there at the at the end of the spit. I think that cannery is still there. I'm pointing stuff out and I was, 
I knew that that building was the cannery. It's where they'll drop off. They have these big cranes that'll pull the fish up off the, off these boats. So I'm sure it's still there, but I think they've cleaned up a lot of what, the reason we used to go in the old days is because that cannery would just, a lot of times they just throw, throw scraps out in the ocean, right? So these eagles, it's like free food. So it just was a congregation of all these eagles. And then there was a woman there, I, I would say 10 years ago, that used to feed the eagles too. It was just kind of her mission. Every morning and every afternoon she would feed the eagles. So there was this huge concentration, you know, so much. I think we've talked about it in the past, but I could count. At one of the trips I was down there, I counted over 400 bald eagles just standing in one spot. Just stand in one spot, do a 360 counting eagles, and there was over 400 in one scene. So I don't know. It's it's uh, as far as why they're there this year. I don't know. This time of year, it's hard to say. I was sorry. I was trying to look up something on the internet while you're talking about that because I have a I have a question. I want to know what the population of Homer was. How big is Homer? And it's but I would just say under it's probably six thousand people, maybe ten thousand ah, people. Six is right on. All right, <laughs> you're right. Six. Is All that right. what it is? I've never been there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I was just curious to know the size of. Yeah, it's about town. yeah the same size as Douglas. It's spread out quite a lot more though. I, I no think. kidding. Even in a bay like that, it's spread out. Yeah, Seward seems the, quite close together. Seward. The town that goes. Time. The town goes all the way up into the side of the mountain. So, and I guess I don't know if that's all city limits, but, and it's pretty long too because it's kind of spread along the bay. Does it face north or south or does it go both sides of the bay? It's right in the middle of the bay. And then the spit goes out in the middle of the bay. There's water on both sides. And then the road, you can go into town, the historical part of town, which Homer, Homer's there because it's like the last bay that is a safe bay for big ships so if big ships are going up to anchorage up the cook inlet they stop in homer and they'll pick up an actual pilot that can drive or what do you call it when you drive a boat when it's pilot when you're the pilot of that ship they'll pick up a pilot Mm -hmm. that specializes just in going up the cook inlet so whoever the pilot was to get to Kachemak Bay, they take a backseat or jump off, and then somebody else brings the boat all the way up to Anchorage. Okay. So they use it for that. So there's water on both sides of the spit where they store these big, humongous ships, these big shipping container ships, or oil or gas or whatever it is that they're hauling around. And then um, there's a road that goes out to to the east out of Homer that... I asked the guy, one of the locals, and he said he knows, he doesn't know how far it goes, but it goes at least 17 miles out, and there's houses the whole way, so it's quite a big community. Mm-hmm. That was the first I learned about pilots, it was last summer when we were in Seward, with right. doing that podcast with Ron Niebrugge, and that there was a pilot, we watched a, a tour boat turn around, and that would look like a small, it's not a small bay, but for the size of the tour boat. You know, he did it on a dime, but that's his sole job is just knowing that bay. And he gets on it before the ship comes to bay, you know, brings it in and takes it out. And then their regular captain of the ship takes over once they're back at sea, right? And he hops on this little tug or commuter boat and heads back into Seward. So it must be the same thing. All the, I think all these bays are like that because yep. there's such a different topo- underwater yeah. topography, right? And Kurt, um, the captain of the boat that we went out on, he said that, the uh, the captain is still the captain of the boat, but the pilot the pilot doesn't necessarily take the helm, 
but they're in charge of making sure that they don't make any mistakes as far as navigation. You know, and I think, Mike, you even commented when we first got up there, that was due to the uh, Exxon Valdez disaster up there. Is Now it's a requirement that they have a pilot that's that's local. And they were talking about uh, Kurt and Janelle, the two that were on the boat that we went out on. They said that the book that these, these guys have to memorize, they said it's a great job. But there is a, a whole book, a whole volume of information that these guys have to know in their head and be able to recall immediately just to keep these big ships safe as they navigate the channel going north. And so it's a very critical job. It's a, it's a great job from the sounds of it, critically important job. And so they're just, they just can't afford any mistakes with what, you know, the cargo that these guys are navigating through these seas. And through these channels. But ultimately, to answer your original question, why are there eagles there? You know, historically, I think it was because it was all the fish and all the scraps and things like that. Now, I just, I think that there's healthy eagle populations. I think you can go all around Alaska and find really healthy populations of eagles. Just in, you know, driving down next to the Kenai River, you can spot eagle nests pretty frequently. So I think there's just a huge population of eagles. The cool thing about Homer, and we can get into this more as we talk about it, but there's just a lot of sea life, and a lot of that stuff washes up. You know, there'll be dead sea. Uh, well, we saw a couple of dead otters. We That was kind of odd, we thought, but um, there were some dead otters. There's lots of little... What That first night that Ron photographed, it was a dead duck of some sort. Yeah, I think it was a... Or a merganser. I think it was a merganser after he looked at it a little bit longer. So who knows how all this stuff's ending up there, but there's a lot of life there. So there's going to be a lot of death too. And, and I think those eagles take, take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Well, being coastal, I mean, the temperatures, it was blowing me away when I was checking on the weather network. You know, you, it was warmer there than it was here in Southern Ontario. And so I assume that that bay doesn't freeze right through the winter. We asked Kurt, in, in our podcast, I don't remember what he said, but we did a podcast with the captain of the boat that we took out, and he said the last time it froze was, what, do you remember, Ron? It was a long I don't time remember. ago. It was like in the I 60s or something the like that, the last time that that thing froze. So it is one of the furthest north ports that doesn't freeze. So the eagles use the open water. Yep. And then, I mean, uh, even here in Ontario, when the ice is questionable, animals fall through. Deer will fall through, moose will fall through, and die. And then the eagles will scavenge that through winter, right? If any of these rivers have any strong current, and if it warms up, and that happens more and more, the warming up and, and questionable ice. So this is different, I mean, obviously, in Homer, but the fact that there's an ice edge but doesn't freeze up, I mean, there's going to be things happening that let scavenging eagles feed through the winter. Right. So what was, so you get there. And did you start with Eagles right away? You've got your accommodations, you're going, you see the, the hardwood floors, the moose pillows on the bed. I saw the picture. I love that. <laughs> and I know you saw wildlife on the way down. I won't touch on that because that's in the other podcast. But how did it unfold? Well, tell, me, tell me some parts of this trip that you didn't talk about on the other podcasts that we can get into. Because well, I, I, think- I do... There's a couple of pictures I want to talk about, but I'll save that for a little bit later. I think we did touch on the first eagles that we really, I mean, we saw birds on the way down, but I think the first ones that we really had an opportunity to photograph 
were on the beach and that's where they had the the merganser but that was you know <laughs> i had a couple shots in my mind and one is the one that mike has behind his shoulder right now for those of you that are watching this on youtube you know just that coming in for a landing shot but also i wanted to get because that's a that's the only place that's an opportunity to get the headshots of an eagle because they're so tolerant down there they're they're around people all the time and that was knocked out first day got that shot next day and the the day following is when we first went out on the boat and that was um nothing short of spectacular we got out there and you get out to this bay where the birds are and you can't really see them they're back in the trees and then all, all of a sudden you start to see these birds flying around and pretty soon you start to notice that there's birds everywhere and birds perch there's you know the marine life i guess was what took me kind of by the surprise i was surprised to find out that you know kurt said that there were 6400 um sea otters just in the ketchmack bay area so i didn't expect that uh there were also harbor seals and he said that there was uh, uh, some stellar sea lions that showed up we didn't didn't get to see them, but they were in the area as well. We did see a harbor seal. Um, didn't get a chance to photograph the one in that area, but we did photograph some later on in Seward. But the, just the sheer amount of biodiversity and marine life, I was shocked at what was there this time of year. Mike, you were kind of surprised that the, that the numbers were as low as they were initially. Of the if eagles? I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You know, I I went in the heyday, right, when you could go down there and that woman was feeding the eagles and the, the fish packing plant was dumping scraps out in the ocean. And like I said, you could just count just tons of eagles everywhere. I mean, so I, I didn't want to have high hopes because I hadn't been back in probably, I don't even know how many years. But you get down there and there's plenty of stuff to do. And the more you learn about what's going on, that first night you asked what we did, we drove around a lot just to check stuff out. You know, I didn't know, I'd never been out that road that goes to the east of Homer, and I didn't know if it comes down next to the bay or not. So we drove that road just to see if there was any opportunities there, and as it turns out, there's not. But we did see a ton of moose out there. So just about every, there's tons of green grass growing already. I mean, you'll see a field, and it'll just be green. And so we saw a couple of moose that were, like, down on their elbows, just munching away and we drove by and the half an hour we come back and that moose hadn't moved a two feet and was just eating green grass it was um quite the quite the scenario as far as we we, we did we did a lot of exploration and then we ended up going back to the spit just because that's where you do find most of the eagles the bad thing about the spit is there is nothing that is not man-made that these birds can perch on so you'll have boat masts you'll have light poles You'll have building tops, and you're guaranteed to see 20 eagles on that drive down the spit, which is probably what? A couple miles, three three miles maybe? Maybe not that far. I don't even know. I guess we could look that up, but you might count 20 eagles, but they're sitting on a the tsunami siren, or they're sitting on a boat mast. Or, but every now and then, a big root ball will wash up on shore. And then they'll use those too. So you got to watch for those opportunities that hopefully you can find an eagle. And generally, if that's happening, there are so many people in Homer that use the beach for exercise. 
So they run up and down the beach along the edge of the water. Though there's a path that goes up and down. They'll go up and that. So these eagles are 100% custom accustomed to people. So if you find an eagle in that situation, if you take your time and you just slowly mosey down there, you don't just jet out and run out and try to get a picture. You take your time, look at other stuff, look at rocks, look at seashells. Eventually, you're going to get within a distance with a big lens that allows you to get a really awesome shot, provided the light's right and the, the wind's right. Um, these eagles, most of the time, aren't going to fly. Wish I'd been there. Yeah. And yeah. Ron, the more trips that we do or that I hear about you doing, I'm beginning to think that you and Luke might be cut from the same cloth and just be good luck. Because the trips <laughs> that the trips that you've done, you you've got the shots you wanted. I mean, yeah. Sometimes well, the first night things have unfolded, but I mean I'm I'm so happy this worked out because now you guys want to go back and I want to go with you. <laughs> So next year, what I what I found out on this trip, and we'll get into more detail on this, but I got shots that I didn't know I wanted that Mike knew he wanted. He, you know, from the times that he'd been there in the past and kind of the different behaviors that they looked for. And when I saw what he got, I was like, "Holy cow! I I got to have some of that myself." And so then it was it was a whole new learning curve because you had to. You had to look for, you know, how these birds fed, how they interacted with each other and when they were going to make these turns because they're really their eagles are aerial acrobats. And you don't think about it because they're big birds, but they make some turns. And once they get their eye locked into either a spot or a meal or whatever the case may be, they don't take their eye off of it. So when they turn their heads on the target and their body's turning, and it might be wing position, it might be head position, feet come out. You know, we discussed why that happened. Probably just kind of a counterbalance is kind of the theory that we came up with, uh, why they extend their feet as they're making these turns. But they were some of the most unbelievable images that, uh, you know, I couldn't even imagine getting them in Wyoming like that, just because the, the sheer number of birds doesn't give you that opportunity. There's not the competition, so... A bird in Wyoming could afford to fly a half mile out and come back and and have a meal still all to themselves. A bird in Homer where there, you know, there's that sheer number of birds. If they find something, you know, find something dead on the beach or whatever the case may be, they've got to turn and get back to it before another bird's on it. And the juvenile birds were very aggressive feeding. And so the, the adult birds had had to be on their game to beat them to a meal or to come in sometimes. And we did get some video of this on one of the sea otters. Uh, the adult bird just come in and just take it over. And the juvenile birds knew their place. So they would they would back off. We didn't see too much fighting. We, and I think got a little bit of video of them jumping around or kind of jumping at one another to just kind of who was going to take control of this feeding opportunity. Some of those behaviors I had never really taken the time to see before. And once I saw them, it was like you had to have that image. It, it was just a whole nother level. And then trying to get it shooting in a vertical aspect ratio versus shooting horizontally and cropping it out, that posed challenges in and of themselves because everything's happening so fast and you're at 500 millimeters trying to shoot these birds 
as they're turning and you have just a split second to get it, you had to definitely learn to watch the behaviors that happened before the behavior that you wanted to capture. And so that was the challenge that kind of posed itself for the last couple of days. And I finally did get a couple of those images, but it was not easy. Just talking to Mike and what he's looking for. It was great to have him there, to have somebody there that had done this before and just get that knowledge that, you know, it would have taken me a couple of days to observe before I got the timing down. Um, so to have him there, I think was, was critical. Yeah, I, I made the novice mistake. I mean, I couldn't make this trip, but I wasn't, I mean, I love being in Alaska anytime. I love traveling with you guys and I love building content for the podcast, but I wasn't losing sleep over this. And I, you know, I knew you guys would knock it out of the park and you'd do podcast stuff, but I made a novice mistake in, in assuming that how many different things can you do with Eagle pictures? How many different Eagle pictures can you make? Well, somebody could sit across the table from me and say, hey, Mark, why are you still taking moose pictures? How many moose pictures can you take? Right. It's like, well, it, there's really, with the dynamic behavior of these animals or these birds, there's, there's so many opportunities. And, you know, like you say, we, we would all go. So this would have potentially been my first real solely eagle photo shoot, too. And I would have gone in wanting that horizontal wing spread you know, all the flight feathers fanned out, beautiful image. But it's just, that's the go-to stock image that's flooded the world. Nobody, I mean, it, it's nice to have in your own collection, but as a as a photographer that's selling images, it's not going to go very many places. But there are so many other compositions that I saw you two come out with. It's like, whoa. And, and it just... It was like a slap in the face reminder to me. It's like, you know what? These are intelligent birds and flight is amazing. And and the colors on these birds between the mature birds, white head and tail feathers, their yellow feet, the talons, their beak, the huge wings and the flight feathers. And then what you guys did playing with light in their behaviors as well. It's like, oh, I mean, it was, damn, you guys are good. And it was a good shoot. And I just, my head hadn't processed it far enough along to realize that you really can challenge yourself as a photographer to create a really diverse and impressive portfolio on a shoot like this. It just doesn't have to be an eagle with a mountain vista behind it, which is beautiful in and on itself. I, I get that. But mm -hmm. there really seemed to be a lot of potential. And you guys tapped into that and... and did a phenomenal job, and so. So I'll I'll say this. Yeah. The the first night we came off the boat, we downloaded images, backed them all up, you know, going through our workflow, and sat down, and I was editing images, and I'm all smiles. I thought, man, I killed this. This is awesome. And then Mike goes, Yeah, I got, you know, thirteen or fourteen good shots out of that. And I go over and look at them, and I'm like, I suck. <laughs> I just. I just wasted two hours of my life shooting shots that were terrible. To be completely honest, the the first night we were on the boat, actually the first night on the beach, I was like, I got way better images than I've ever taken of an eagle. You know, I dug a little trench in the so I could get low enough to get the mountains of the bird that was feeding on the Braganzer. There was another bird in the background. I was pretty stoked about that shot, and I was, you know, happy with a couple flight shots because – 
these birds are skimming the surface of the ocean and they're at eye level flying. You're getting flight shots at eye level of a stinking eagle. And then I saw what Mike got and I was like, yeah, I got to step up my game because he was getting totally different behaviors based on the experiences that he'd had before. And he knew what he was looking for. And holy crap, that is definitely the shot. It definitely took a lot of years of going up there and you just watch these eagles. And one thing I was going to say earlier is they all have different habits too. There's certain birds that like to fly low and there's certain birds that like to go high and it's super hard to tell them all apart, but every now and there'll be some sort of marking on a wing or there'll be, we saw one, one bird that had three of its talons were missing. So you could identify that bird pretty quick in a photo. You couldn't necessarily see it when they were flying by, but you watch some of these, not necessarily did I know it was this exact bird, but I'd see this bird doing the same pattern they would go way out and they'd bank and then they'd come back and fly over us and go to the next, you know, to some uh, perch. But so I key in on certain birds that are doing certain flight patterns that allow me to lock on a lot further out. And then, you know, that that's some of that experience from before, right? Where if you're going to try that or if you're going to try to get something different, you've got to figure out, okay, what bird is doing what I am, what bird is doing the behavior that I'd like to capture. And I guess I never even thought about telling Ron that. I just like assumed, oh, well, but it was probably four or five years worth of going there to figure out, oh, that's the shot. Yeah, it's cool to get a nice soaring eagle, but man, if you could get the bird turning and flying almost upside down and and it, to shoot vertical like Ron was saying, I've done it thousands of times and it is so hard because you're just you're narrowing that field of view right to left. And you're totally trying to time it when that bird's going to turn. And you don't know when they're going to turn. So it, you can shoot a thousand pictures and might, you might be lucky to get 10. Or you can shoot 10,000. So that second night. It sounds like that, fun though. I shot 10,000 images on that two and a half hour boat ride. Just because. On this trip. That was just on one boat ride. Right. 10,000 well, images. Okay. So here, here we've got to say how much we love digital. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's one thing that I commented, trying to do that shoot on a film camera. If if you would have gotten one of the images that we got, you'd have been set for life because you, you'd have sold that image forever. When I first with, started coming here, film. it was film. I was shooting film, and we would come here with 200 rolls of film. and No choice. Yeah. But there's something to be said for that too, right? I think that hones your ability, right? Because it's not just spray and pray. It's like, okay, I got 36 shots. To nail this and you'd really pick and choose your time so i think you, that makes you better too it's not like not like i am now where i just lock on a bird and stay with it with the button down i think ron made a comment that he actually first time he'd ever filled his buffer <laughs> yeah yeah that you know even the d d850 is as high megapixel images as that thing takes i still have never hit the buffer with those xqd cards it's really fast and for those of you that don't know, the buffer, so your your camera can write at a certain speed. So when you're taking images on, you know, high-speed shutter, your camera, let's say it has a, a buffer of 25 images. So once you take 25 images in a row, you hit the end of that buffer, and now it's it's writing, but it can't continue to take images. And I have never gotten to that point because I've, you know, I'll do bursts of maybe 
five or six images and then I'll take a little break and I'll do bursts of five or six images again. So the camera is staying ahead of that. And so I can continue to shoot with these eagles. You're trying to catch the behavior, you know, hammer down on the shutter, something that I don't typically do just to try to catch that one shot or that one posture. And I hit the buffer, I think twice where it's and then you, you know, it catches up and you can start shooting again. But I didn't ever hear Mike hit the buffer on that one DX Mark II. That thing works pretty fast. Yeah, half the file size, but I was shooting to the CFast card. But the other cool thing about digital down there, so we got in these lighting conditions where we were, we were kind of in a, what would you call it, Ron, a bay? It was an offshoot of the main bay. It was another bay. I can't, I can't even remember what the name of it was. But it's Secret Bay that your yeah, boat captain super, knows secret, in that bay. that'll be taking us to and our guests next March. Yeah, for sure. For this lighting experience. And this is totally weather dependent, and we hit the weather like you wouldn't believe. He said, crossing that bay, you can have 10-foot waves. I don't think I'd want to be on that boat in 10-foot waves. But when we were there, it was totally flat. I mean, the only wave you would have was a wake from another boat. It's pretty amazing to see a huge bay like that that is totally flat. And then you get down these little bays, and it's 100% flat. You're just kind of floating. Now, you're constantly moving because you got the tide. So the tide is constantly coming in or going out or whatever the situation is, depending on the time. He got us in a spot where one side of the – it was facing kind of east-west, and the sun was setting to the west, and we had one side of the valley – was totally dark in shadow, and the other side is totally bright in light. And then anywhere that the birds were flying was lit up, and it would made for the perfect way to blow everything out or not blow it out, darken it all down. So off, often the distance was to almost black, and then you had the eagle lit up like a Christmas tree, and I'd I'd never had that situation before. And I think you could you couldn't do that around the town of Homer. There's just nothing close enough that would go shadow like that. But when we were able to get out on a boat, it was amazing. Was he anchored then or just yes. drifting? We did no, anchor. He, he anchored a couple times, yeah. Where he could. There was places in that fjord that was 20, 200 feet deep, he was telling me. so. But then you'd get closer to the edge and you could see some rocks down there, so he'd throw an anchor down. That was pretty amazing. And I just started seeing it. And you know, we talk about this guy all the time, but you... Jason just had that shot of the elk coming out of the sun, you know, same situation. And I was thinking about that shot, especially when I started looking at the back of my camera, referring back to the digital. I'm taking pictures and I'm looking. And as you're following a bird, you know, you have to go to manual exposure because there's such a difference in the changing from dark to light to snow covered mountains to, you know, if you let your camera do it, it's just going to not be good because you're always going to be messed you'll have it right in some places but you'll be wrong in so many places but if you just base it off the light that's hitting whatever you're shooting chances are pretty good but when they get in that dark area i even i was shooting three stops under in order to get that head so it wasn't overexposed and that the black went dark it was it was amazing but i i don't think i would have been able to do that with film just because i wouldn't have known Right? How would you know to change it three stops? Right. I've, yeah, you'd blow the whole trip for that setup exactly. until you knew. Yeah. So that's awesome with digital. But I tell you, the shots that you guys collected in that scenario, 
I mean, are jaw dropping. I mean, we, we have a lot of talented photographers that listen to our podcast. I see their work on Instagram. Um, and I've seen great Eagle images, but I haven't seen Eagle images that look like this and that are different in this fashion and just coming out of the dark into the light. And with that eye, that focus, the talons, and to be able to do it with an animal that has such contrast in color, again, that white head and those dark wings and that dark background to have exposed it. I mean, really, the the pictures I've seen are pictures of a lifetime for eagles. And I and want them in I don't want to I don't want to profit from them in my portfolio, but I want to sell them on your behalf in my portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> because they're they're incredible you know it's it yeah. and it's something it was as a great vision and, and based on experience to recognize that scenario and you're seeing them flying around and saying wait a minute look at them over there and coming out of this and and playing with it experimenting and that's the, again back to digital you can do that and say oh make your adjustments but yeah as we were into it i didn't know i didn't know if ron saw it or not or if he you know because there's bright sun there's snow there's this dark mountain and i I'm shooting and I'm thinking, man, should I tell Ron that this is like a one of a once in a lifetime like situation? And I or should I keep it. this a secret from my buddy? <laughs> I, I didn't the only other photographer on the boat. <laughs> I was thinking about keeping it a secret, but I was like, well, I don't want to screw up what he's trying to do, you know, and I don't want to act like there's know it all. But finally, I was like, hey, are you seeing this over here? Because I think what we were able to get here is. I don't know that you could get it anywhere else with the perfect light. I mean, there's certain places to get it, but we just had everything just fell into place as far as the time of day, the flat water, plenty of birds to shoot, and you could lock on them with enough time to keep them in the frame and hopefully get that shot. So, I, you know, Ron was like, yeah, 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 I got, I got it, I got it. But I wasn't sure, so I really had to kind of make sure he heard it. And it, it took a minute to realize, and... And this is something that, you know, Charles Glatzer that we've had on the show before, this is the way he teaches manual, is that as long as it's in the same light, it doesn't matter what the background is. So if you're shooting in aperture mode, you're running your exposure compensation dial on the back of the camera. But if you're shooting in manual and you're exposed for the bird, you're getting proper exposure on the bird and he's in the same sun, it doesn't matter whether your background's black or white the camera is going to make the adjustment on the exposure compensation. So as long as you're shooting your subject in the same light, you don't have to touch it once you find the correct exposure. And it was still difficult because you are shooting a brown or black bird with a white head and white tail. Still difficult to find that perfect exposure. But once you find it, you didn't really have to worry about messing with it at all. And you could focus on getting the behavior or getting the uh, the posture that you're looking for. That situation in shooting manual was, like Mike said, it was a requirement. You had to stay there. Otherwise, you would have been cranking your exposure dial, and as soon as you turned around, you had to crank it the other way. But if you're shooting in manual, it takes care of the problem for you. So are you guys going to put these images, or a couple of these representative images, on the show notes at wildandexposed.com for today's podcast? Just so yeah. that people can see them. And why I mention that is, because I'm hoping to do this with you two next year. And of course, assuming that the weather and everything cooperates and lines up, how long did you get to spend in that situation? Did you have an hour with that kind of light? I, I think with the fjord, 
you know, given the average height of the fjord, you would have some time with a dark background as the sun setting. So it wasn't like you had five minutes to scramble and do this. So that people that come along and they see these images and how powerful, how visually powerful they are. I mean, it's an op- if the weather cooperates and you have a, a calm day at that time of day, you can have an hour or two with that situation to experiment and, and photograph with. I yeah. think we had... We had what about an hour with that just gorgeous light, didn't we? Or did we have a little bit more than that? You think? No, we had about an hour because we went to another spot too. So yeah, I you have about an hour. You'll nail it pretty fast as far as the exposure. What takes the time is to get that pose, to get that you know figure out which eagle flies at what elevation in or what group of eagles. Like I said, it was so hard to tell them apart, but I could just tell a flight path that an eagle was going to take that would have them end up where I wanted them to turn. So I had the black background. So it was, it, that's, what's going to take you the time to figure out. So you definitely, if you're into eagles, you definitely want to come with us next year because we got the spots, we've got the boat. We'll go back there. And if we have the weather, that's the only thing we can't control. If we get the weather, it, it it'll be amazing. Our captain was talking about another group that was out earlier in March and they just had really crappy weather, cloudy and rainy and snowy all the whole time. And it's so hard to work, you know, in, you can get really good shots as long as they're close, but you will never get what we were able to get with that light. You have to have, yeah, calm, clear afternoon. Yep. I mean, the snow flying in snow flurries is cool too. Yeah. That's a whole nother thing. Yeah. And the other thing you get, what I've experienced in the past with the snow, you definitely want the snow if you can get it, especially a day that where a storm goes through and the next morning it wakes, you wake up and it's clear blue skies, but you got snow on the ground. That is perfect for eagles too because it lights up their underside. So you'll get some images that are pretty stellar that way and a whole different ball game. So you, you know, if you could have a day of snow and a day, two days of pure blue sky with flat seas, I mean, that would be the perfect three or four day trip. You well, seem to be an eagle whisperer. You've done this. You know the eagles, man. More than I more than I realized. Definitely been down that road. Yeah. yeah. I would I would not have gotten postures that I that I ended up getting the the flight shots that I ended up getting had Mike not gotten what he got that first day. And then we you know, we spent some time talking about it and when he used to go there that was the, that was the shot that they were looking for. And I can see why. I mean, it just makes such a huge difference dramatically. Light aside, if you put that same image on a blue sky, which I got a couple times, it's an awesome shot. And if we never would have gotten what we got, I would have been really, really happy with that. And that would have been a limited edition print. But with what we ended up getting, I never could have never could have expected that or drawn it up any better because, you know, the, the sky was perfect. The seas were perfect. We had this little mountainside that was just completely black. And then later, as the sun started to, to go down, the other side started to be in shadow. But there were little slivers of light that were still coming through. So you get the leading edge of these eagles' wings lit up. You get one side of the eagle, and you get these little rays. So you got these green. You can see the, the vegetation in the background All that's also green. And then, you know, that just added a whole new dramatic piece to the composition. You could not draw it up and ask for anything more than what we got. I, I may never take another eagle image as long as I live. I don't. You're not going next know. year? 
Yes, I am. But you know, if we're if we're doing a workshop, obviously, right. You know, the the first priority is is making sure that the people that we're with are getting good images. But I'm sure it could be topped. It's like anything else. You think you've gotten the shot, and there's always a better one. Certainly, different things you can do. You want two you want two eagles banking at the same rate. There you go. In the a same skirmish. Plane. Yeah. A little skirmish, talons yeah. locked. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That yeah, that was a shot that would have been acceptable. And the <laughs> <laughs> last spot that we ended up going, so we we did end up leaving this bay uh, reluctantly, but we we did end up leaving, and we went to this other island, and this other island had these red face cliffs, and I think there's a shot to be had there as well because we ended up kind of stopping. He couldn't anchor because it was too deep and. The water was moving quite a lot more once we got to this second spot because we're in kind of more open ocean. But these red faced cliffs, I think if you could have gotten far enough away from the cliffs, the birds were flying, you know, back and forth all over this cliff face or this against this island. But if we got could have gotten a little bit further away, I think if you just shot wide open. So if you'd have shot on my lens, the 200 to 500, the widest aperture is f 5.6. I think you could have blurred out that cliff face and still had that color in your background and still had the birds completely in focus. Uh, but we were just a little bit closer than we needed to be to have that work out. There is more that you could do there, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And not we sound had... like a picky, greedy butthole. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. You know, but... <laughs> Well, but but you recognize there's more to do. That's cool. Yeah. How many how many eagles would you say you saw that day, roughly? Just a, a guesstimate. What you would? I I have no idea. The second day? Yeah. Yeah, we probably saw a hundred between the two or three places that we went. There, it's amazing because you get to a place and you you see some eagles flying around, and then you know whenever you you get down and you start shooting, and they get curious and they start coming down, and then all of a sudden you have what was two or three or four, now is five, six, 10, 12. And then, then what they do is they'll perch right on this, in that fjord kind of thing that we were in. The, the edges were pretty close, so they would just sit right there. Yeah, you don't see them, and then you start to pick out the white heads everywhere. And there was one shot, and I, I don't know how it's going to work out. It, it looks kind of neat just because of the way they were perched, but there's like a triangle of eagles in this tree. And I took the shot. Like I said, I don't know that it'll ever be good for anything except, hey, look at that triangle. Um, but it was it was pretty neat to see them all perched like that. I asked the boat captain, I said, so how far do these eagles fly, you know, whenever they, they're investigating something? He said, see that point over there? He said, I'll guarantee you some of these eagles came from there, and that's two miles away. So whenever they get some eagles start flying around and there's like the option of something going on or if they're cackling like they do, an eagle will see or hear that and come from that far to see what's going on. Yeah, I was shocked, you know, because when you get there, you're like, oh, there's a few eagles here. And then before long, there's just five or six or ten flying around. You want five or six or ten because it makes it a little bit easier, actually, because you can lock on one and you can start figuring out patterns and you can really dial into a bird as opposed to just too much stuff where you're like, I don't know what to do. You definitely want to come on the trip with us next year. I've got a couple of questions. One, well, 
to finish that day on your boat ride back to the dock, was it such a good day? You just kind of each sat back, didn't talk, just looked at the scenery and just soaked it all in. Or were you looking at the back of your cameras because those photos were just better than you could have ever imagined for that day? How did that wrap up? I was chimping like a mother. (laughs) (laughs) I was looking for whales. I appreciate your honesty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I actually was looking at the back of my camera and then everybody in the boat stood up. Mike stood up. The, the, uh, other captains stood up, and then I realized, yeah, I should be looking around because there were still things to be had. And you guys saw something. We don't know what it was still, but we spent some time looking and waiting for something to come up again. So our boat captain, he's he's a basically a water taxi. You know, he'll do whatever. He'll haul people to an island. He'll haul supplies up the bay to, to for construction. He'll do whatever, right? He was out the previous day doing something, and he had, they had seen two orcas. So I was pretty trend-fixed on, man, it would be super cool. Because we still had beautiful light. The, the sun hadn't set yet. So right now, the sun's coming up about 7.30, and it's setting about 9 o'clock. Or maybe a little bit. It's still light at 9 o'clock. Not light enough to shoot, but there's plenty of light in the sky. So, you know, that sun hadn't set down below the horizon. So I'm like, man, if you came across some orcas or something, it would be quite the amazing thing. So I was kind of transfixed on that on the way back. But I was definitely itching to get back to the hotel to go looking at some images. And we stayed up pretty late that night because we were pretty excited. Yeah. Not to mention we just got put in the luxury suite. You had up- an upgrade? <laughs> We did get it. Yeah, the the guy that was supposed to get the rooms lined out screwed up and gave the wrong date for our uh I gave the last the last night I thought I was telling him the last night we needed, but I was telling him that's when we were checking out. And so we didn't have the cabin for the last night. But we had uh we had gotten to know the manager a little bit and so they they found us another cabin well then they had one of the bigger ones open up and they upgraded this for the same price and yeah it was uh it was pretty luxurious accommodations right on the beach sweet that's your trip starts off in first class you get the eagle shots that you could never (laughs) dream of you get the luxury suite yeah ron didn't want to leave alaska when he left no no i didn't and i'll tell you what the heck happens when you have a trip like that and you do leave Alaska is you get a text from your buddy saying, oh, there's three links in the front yard of some guy's house. And so you get teased with that a little bit. Oh, and there was Northern Lights that night, too. Thanks for pointing that out. I didn't go shoot it, but they were showing pictures on the news of one of the anchors of one of the channels up here. He goes, he's a Northern Light fanatic, and he was up just... 10 minutes from my place here that he was up shooting Northern Lights at 2 a.m. And it was spectacular with the mountains. That was the only problem with this trip is I didn't sleep worth a dang because I was checking the Aurora forecast all the time. And we never did. The one night where we possibly could have gotten something, it was cloudy and raining off and on. So nothing but a lack of sleep to show for it. Well, it's worth trying while you're there. Got to whine about something. 
because there, it, yeah, the, yeah. Rest of the, the rest of the trip was awesome. There are so many opportunities for Northern Lights in Alaska. Social media is there's just stunning images. So, yeah, you can't help but try. It's something so fun and different to try and capture, too. Yeah. But Alaska, you never know. You never know what you'll see, what you'll come away with, what wildlife will step out when you least expect it. So to close on this subject, then, before we open one other one to end today's podcast, you're mapping out what it's going to take to do this trip next year. You've got it set up. Everything's set up, but it's a matter of mapping out um pricing and but one thing i wanted to ask before closing is do you know how many people could be easily accommodated to make this successful just so our listeners are aware of that too i guess when we post it on our website for tours of workshops and of course our trips are like that i mean it'd be like a combination because we're more than happy to interact and talk about photography and cameras in any way that anything we can do to help so i guess it's more of a workshop than a tour but these these destinations that we travel to are so weather permitting. They're always weather permitting, but so mag- so magnificent that it's kind of like a tour because it's an amazing experience to be there in that setting with the potential of the wildlife. So it's a great combination of a tour and a workshop because we'll be along and we've had experience in these destinations, obviously, as Michael and Ron have with these eagles in Homer. How many people roughly, I mean, we'll post it when it goes live on our website what would be an easy number do you think is it it's only like four or five people or would there be more than that could come along for those few days i think we could we have the option of taking two boats and then they would have ground transportation for us as well and i think that you know four people on each boat along with uh, whoever's going to do the instruction for the day i think that that is what we kind of decided would would max out the opportunity wouldn't you say mike yeah, we were going to take eight people. So we have accommodations for eight. We got ground transportation for eight. And then we'll have the boats for eight. So With us included. Or not, sorry, with us in addition to the eight. Yeah, yeah. The three of us will be out there on the boats to provide instruction. And, you know, I would certainly want to help anybody get the kind of images we were able to get for sure. Yeah, and I will say, you know, I feel pretty confident that I could have gone up there and gotten images, but I could not without what I learned on the trip from Michael, who's been up there several times, I wouldn't have come away with the images that I came away with. And so for somebody who looks at these images and and likes what they see, I would just give you that. It's it's not a cheap trip. It is an investment uh, because the boats are not cheap. And if we're going to get out to where the birds are at this point, you've got to take the boats. But think about that when you're, when you're thinking about, you know, the investment and the cost that's in, that goes along with it is you're going to get the instruction that you need to get the, get the images exactly the way you want to capture them. So it, you know, there is something to be said for going along with another photographer, especially somebody who's had that experience. And people would fly into Homer and rendezvous with us there. There's two ways to do it. I personally, if I was going to do it, I would fly into Anchorage, rent a car and drive down. Now it's going to add to the cost for somebody because you have to rent a car, but that drive down is spectacular, and it would take an extra day on each side of the trip. If your time's limited, yeah, you can fly right into Homer. We have the transportation from the Homer airport to the cabins and then daily transportation to the boat or to the spit or to do whatever we're going to do. So either way, but if you have the time and a little bit extra money for the car rental, 
I would definitely drive down because there's a lot of stuff. We stopped in Seward on our way back, and we watched a seal, harbor seal, eating a rockfish, and just the. If you've never been to Seward, it's a pretty awesome little town to hang out in. So you could do some of that kind of stuff. The sea otters there right now this time of year? We went and looked. We didn't see any. But How they, long a drive from Anchorage oh, to Homer? Five hours. It's a haul. It's 200 miles. That's if you don't stop to photograph all the volcanoes along the way. Because you are in the ring of fire as you travel down there. So there's a, a lot of good scenery to, to photograph along the way if you choose to do so. But they're currently not erupting. So you can get through. There. No, yeah, you're good. <laughs> it's all good. We'll get this stuff up on the website, and but let's let's talk about Alaska one final time in a different context because there's something coming up much sooner than next March Eagles. I mean, it's good to map that out, and especially with a limited number. But this July trip, you guys were working on that last week too so how is that developed and what's happening there for this july so it's going to be we do have the dates confirmed it's july 8th 9th and 10th those are the days that we'll be on the boat um, we'll have lodging set up as well and then uh transportation is going to be on your own so you're going to want to fly into anchorage and then drive to seward alaska and then we'll meet there we'll have marine wildlife opportunities as well as the potential for uh, you know, maybe a day of photographing bears on the on the river fishing along with fishermen in Alaska, they they fish side by side, so we may be able to get some of that as well. But that will be up. Michael's working on the website or the web page right now, so that'll be up likely this week. So you'll be able to get there, and that opportunity is far more limited. We only have five slots for that, and again, lodging's included. Some of the meals will be included, but that is a very, very, very limited opportunity. When meals I say, included too. Wow. Well, I'm talking about sack lunches, Mark, so don't get too excited. On the boat you're talking about. <laughs> on the, yeah. Meals so on the three boat. days on a boat. Yep. And Seward's, is it three hours from Anchorage for those, for the drive, for people to know? But it's, again, a very picturesque drive. I mean, down turning an arm, which is is aptly named you turn so many times along that coast it's beautiful and then you get up into the mountains we were doing last july we did some fun time lapse back in those mountains just putting the uh, smartphone on the dash and just let it record for 15 minutes and just buzz through some of that scenic country it's pretty cool yeah and the boat we're going on is the same boat missy and i were on earlier this year or last year and we had the bubble net feeding humpbacks and we had sea otters and just i mean we stayed on the humpbacks for like five hours so you never know it's the same captain same boat he really dials it in you know those guys talk with each other so if there's whales around we're gonna be on whales and there's no guarantees but and we chose earlier july we could have done late july or early july we chose early july because the chances of having orcas around in bigger numbers is better early so it's a busy time of year in Homer or in Seward just because it's so, it's such a cool place and right in the middle of the summer, but we'll get away from all that and we'll get out in the Resurrection Bay and it should be pretty incredible. So the five people will have three days on the boat. Now I have to ask this, if, if I was somebody signing up, because I haven't been on this boat, what happens if day two is like high winds and pouring rain? What do you do? They will cancel. 
you know, because you just don't want to be out there in that miserable stuff. So do you down to two days, or does he give you a day at the end of that, or you or that's no. it? You lose the day if the if the He's weather's so bad. He's so booked up, so yeah, you kind of lose the day. He it, okay. We have a three day window, and that's it. Okay, so no matter who you are. You don't have that option because he's book full. So the fact that's, I guess, why we booked the three days then. Yep. That is exactly Versus, why we booked the three days. Uh, well, that, and it gives a variety of, of different conditions, right? We'll hopefully get calm conditions. We'll hopefully have clear for a sunrise, sunset, different lighting, yep. and then behavior. I mean, the bubble net feeding is is would be unbelievable to experience. And, and the thing about that, too, from all the footage I've watched on TV or on YouTube, you can see they'd go down. And I, I mean, I've seen people talk about where they watch the birds because you can see the bubbles coming up. But if the boat, and I don't know, it depends on the current, if the boat's not running, and maybe the whales don't, don't even care, but you don't know exactly where they'll surface again, right? And Michael, how, how long would they go down for between surfaces when they're bubble net feeding? Are they down for 20 minutes before they come up again? Or what happened last year? It varied. It would be uh, 10 minutes and it would be 20 minutes. It would be, you know, you just didn't know. And, and the birds are a dead giveaway for sure. But there was times where they faked the birds out too. And we would be watching the birds and then all of a sudden off to our right. And you don't even know where they're going to, there's like very little to tell you, oh, it's just going to happen right here. So it's a, it's a bit of a crapshoot, but it's, man, you, when you're out there amongst it, it goes, it, it's awesome. And then it went on for five hours. It went on longer than that. We just left to go find otters because one of the guys on the boat really wanted to shoot otters. I didn't want to leave because it's just so precious that time to see what's going on. I would have stayed all day. Well, and you don't know. My, my point is I've seen a couple of clips on YouTube where they have. I mean, the, the boats don't go extremely close to them, but there's times they've surfaced right beside the boat. Yep. Right? Yep. You, you see, and that would be just mind-blowingly cool for the experience and for the opportunity to photograph that and just to see that. Yeah, I would say we had them at 100 yards or we had them at 20 yards. And you just never knew where they are going to come up. So, yeah. You had you, them at 20 yards last year? Oh, yeah. You just, you know, and you, you can't approach a whale. Right. But if they approach you, it's it's fine. So, yeah, you, you basically get out there, shut everything off. I don't think he shuts off because he's in the current, so he has to kind of keep, mm. you know, some sort of control of that boat and keep you pointed in the right direction but there was plenty of opportunity to get all kinds of stuff so if it happens it's great and you know but we heard uh reports of orcas and they call them big fins we heard reports of big fins but we never found them and then if they're moving you might get one shot you might get one opportunity and then they're gone you know so it's really hard to say is the the guy in homer told us that there's a lot of orcas down there. He found that if he turns off everything, his his sonar, his his depth, if he turns all that off, he finds that the orcas will come to him because they're really curious as to what's going on. But if you have all that stuff on, all the electronics on, it tends to keep the keep them at a distance away. So you never know. These guys got all these tricks, and they'll do whatever they can to have the best experience possible for the people on the boat. Well, the fact that you had five hours between 100 and yards and 20 yards and bubble net feeding i mean if the weather's right and and we don't we would never we can't guarantee anything but we would never offer a workshop tour if we didn't think it was an experience of a lifetime potential this is why we keep going back each year we have that experience and, and we take away different things from each trip as we've talked about but we wouldn't be going back ourselves and nor inviting people to come if we didn't have hopes of it just being mind blowingly cool yeah 
it's a big investment to to organize this trip and i think it's well worth it awesome wildandexposed.com check it out there's going to be a new page up on there for workshops and all the information will be there and you can contact us with any questions that you might have perfect all right guys well i want to thank our audience for listening i want to encourage our audience to no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on to hit that thumbs up subscribe follow give us that five star rating because those allow us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis until next time you've been listening to wild and exposed podcast thanks for tuning in (laughs) 